This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Greetings, dear listeners. This is another episode of The Remnant uh, with this guy, and I'm pointing my thumb towards me. Uh, this is actually the first episode in double digits. Very exciting. And this week, we're also excited uh, to be brought to you by Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for the liberty movement. If you want to support groups committed to limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise with your charitable charitable giving, you should learn how Donors Trust can simplify your giving. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo right now to get your free Investing in Liberty guide. Remember, the code word is Dingo. So this week, we're doing something a little different. Uh, then again, pretty much every episode, we're doing something different because we're doing things different. Uh, we haven't found our groove yet. But we are doing really well, by the way. We are, by the time this airs, we may be at 1,000 reviews on iTunes, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, subscriptions, we could still, for, if, you, if you like listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to go to iTunes or Stitcher or any of those places where you, you subscribe to podcasts and actually subscribe rather than downloading them individually. And um, I'm not going to get into the internecine podcast wars this week because, frankly, I'm so victorious there's really no reason to rub any of that stuff in, and we want to. I, I'm done with punching down. I mean, I mean, the Commentary Magazine podcast is adorable. It's great. They do a wonderful little boutique thing. Um, same thing with those guys at the Weekly Substandard. But there's no reason to get into all of that. And I do want to get right into uh, the conversation this week. I decided to do something a little different, and I wanted to talk about trade. And I know, you know, it's like that. My one of my favorite episodes of the old Tick cartoon where. They're showing them slides, um, and the tick just says, charts, boring, losing consciousness. Um, I understand that trade is one of these things that kind of bores the hell out of a lot of people. Um, I'm going to try and not bore the hell out of a lot of people. I'm interested in this in part because I spent the last few years, as some listeners know, like Howard Hughes with Kleenex boxes on my feet working on this book. And one of the central themes of the book is how important trade is. Uh, you know, for thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years, there was remarkably little trade. And because there was remarkably little trade, there was remarkably little human prosperity. And for most of human history, trade was considered as dirty or contemptuous, you know, going back to people like Aristotle and straight through the Middle Ages, innovation was considered bad. And the whole reason you're able to listen to this on your iPhone or on your computer or in your car is because in the you know late 1600s, early 1700s, it dawned on some people like Adam Smith that trade was a good thing and not a bad thing, and that commerce actually was not zero sum, and it actually helped everybody. 
um, become more prosperous. And so I wanted to sort of talk about some of this stuff, and we'll see where it goes. Um, I invited Scott Lincecum in, who I know mostly from Twitter and from his writings at the Cato Institute. And we'll see where that conversation goes. And uh, we'll tune back in at the end to talk about some various and sundry things. Uh, but I want to say up front, if uh, you liked this week's new podcast intro music, um, let us know. We're going to try and sort of do different one excerpts from different ones each week. And we'll listen to the feedback from you folks about which ones to use. Uh, Jack, what was the name of the group we used this week? Okay, the name of the group, the name of the song is The Newness. Uh, the name of the group is uh, Josh and Michael Rosenberg, and I enjoyed it, and I hope that everyone else does too. Great. So, and we're going to rotate this out and see, you know, each week, because we've got so many great submissions, it kind of feels cruel not to give props to at least some people. And, um, uh, and you can give feedback at uh, remnantpod at gmail.com, theremnantpod at gmail.com. Someday I'll commit that to memory. So anyway, uh, coming up now in just a second is my conversation with Scott Linscombe. Slideshow. Boring. Losing consciousness. All right. So to, uh, this week, because I am, if nothing, a slave to the base and low pandering, lowest common denominator interests of the listening public, and we've already done barefoot, uh, Bigfoot erotica, we are now really going to pander and talk about trade, which is super exciting, uh, but we're going to make it interesting. And so I have here with me today Scott Lincecum. Yep who I've actually never met, but we're sort of Twitter comrades in arms of whatnot, and I like the stuff that he writes. And you do your own bio in, you know, 100 words or less. You're a trade guy. Sure. So I'm an international trade attorney by day, uh, and then by night uh, I'm an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and visiting lecturer at Duke University Law School, where I teach on trade politics, trade policy, and trade law. Trade. Lots of trade. Lots of international trade stuff. Right. So one of the reasons why I wanted to do this, and I'll just be nakedly obvious about it, is, you know, I've got this big book coming out in the spring, and one of the arguments I make is that trade has has more to do with advancing human prosperity and uh, than almost any other material thing, right? And it seems to me that it, it's, it begins, you know, if you go back and you read the ancients, uh, Aristotle did not like trade, um, believed that anybody who conducted trade, commerce, uh, should be banned from serving as a political ruler uh, when, was it Lysurgis, I think is his name, the head of the Spartans, took over. He banned all commerce and made all property communal. Uh, throughout the Middle Ages, trade was considered dirty and grubby and, and terrible. And it, I'm a big fan of Deirdre McCloskey, and uh, she makes a very persuasive case that it's only when people started to recognize that trade is a good thing and, and a proud calling and that, mer that that commercial life is a proud and good thing that you got this explosion in human prosperity for the first time in human history. So talk me through this. Most listeners seem to think that, that being pro-trade is this ancient thing, but it really kind of starts with what Ricardo and Adam Smith? Yeah. So you're looking at um, basically late 1700s, give right. or take. So, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we emerged from the Dark Ages and then for the next 250, 300 years, everybody was mercantilist. They actually all sounded like Donald Trump. Right. Uh, exports only. We wanted to have a bunch of colonies that we'd export to. We'd take all the raw materials and, and that'd be it. So Adam Smith was the first guy to really say, wait, wait a second. 
why are we sending all of our material prosperity abroad in exports right. and getting really nothing in return isn't the point consumption. Right. And at the end of the day, I mean, that was really Adam Smith's most, I think, most revolutionary thought is, mm-hmm. I mean, the end all be all of human existence is to consume stuff, not to produce it. We produce stuff so we can consume stuff. Right. Um, and then we all understand that every day, um, I think innately. Uh, so then, so Adam Smith began this push against mercantilism. And that was, like I said, pretty revolutionary. And then now Ricardo came along with this crazy idea of comparative advantage. And Ricardo was the first guy to say trade is mutually beneficial even where a country or a company, whatever, might actually have an absolute advantage in producing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is that if I specialize, I'm and uh, Ricardo's famous example was uh, English textiles and Portuguese wine. And he said, look, the English are really good at making uh, cloth. It's a good thing it wasn't the other way around. Yes, yes, definitely. Although I think the English now do have some wines. But anyway, uh, so he said, look, you know, the English should focus on making uh, cloth and the Portuguese should focus on making wine. And even though the English might actually be better at making both, together by cooperating, they are actually, uh, they have more prosperity. Uh, this kind of mutually beneficial, mutually reinforcing uh, prosperity that, that emerges from their comparative advantages. Now, comparative advantage, believe it or not, is still a widely misunderstood concept, uh, and it, but it still is applied today in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a lawyer by day. I don't grow my own food. I, I outsource that to somebody else. It'd be the same with clothing and the rest. Right. We all understand this innately, and yet when you get into a national context, people's brains kind of shut off and all of a sudden comparative advantage. And let's face it, um, uh, mercantilism... So. Comparative advantage goes out the window and mercantilism comes Yeah, same, so I, mean, I hear what you're saying about the consumption thing, although I have many friends out there who are probably saying that the point of human existence isn't to consume stuff. But it seems to me that the better – I mean when, I, when you say comparative advantage, what I hear is division of labor. Yeah. Right? And you know, when people say buy local, I always like to say, well, you know, if you do that, right, I mean you're ba- the more you take buy local seriously – the more you basically believe in a subsistence economy, right? If, if, if everyone made their own, churned their own butter and wove their own cloth and all the rest, by definition, you would be poor, right? I mean, the, the, the more, the less you believe in trade, the more, the less you believe in the division of labor and allocating time, which is the true greatest resource. Cause, you know, it turns out God, you know, they say God's not making any more land, but man is, right? But he's not making any more time. Right. And, and so trade and division of labor are the things that create more more time, right? I mean, the amount of time you had to work for an hour of light a hundred years ago was something like, you know, what, what is it, 40 hours or something like that. And now it's literally free for most people. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I think is sort of fascinating are these studies, you know, when I talk to college kids about trade, I always say, I always point out, you know, there's these great studies that show that um, trade actually increases happiness regardless of the supply, right? And so they, they do these studies where they randomly give a bunch of kids candy bars. And one yeah. kid gets a Kit Kat, and one kid gets an Almond Joy, and one kid gets, you know, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. But because it's random, some kids aren't happy with what they got. And so they t- fill a little form, and they say their satisfaction, and some kids will say a 2, and some will say a 10 because they got what they liked, and some will say a 5. And then they let them 
trade. Mm -hmm. And the kid who doesn't like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups gets to have the Hershey bar. And the kid who got the Hershey bar gets to get the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. And when they do the satisfaction survey again, the average the average happiness in the room almost doubles because everyone gets what they want. And it's purely because division of labor, trade, commerce, comparative advantage, these things allow people to have more of what they want as they want it. Right. We actually do that. I, I did that exact experiment in an uh, undergrad political science class I taught at Duke. We did that. With for, candy or yeah, with Yeah, with candy. Yeah. With candy. Well, you know, they, some of these kids were underage, and I would never support such. Yeah, well, I mean, thank, thank you for coming, Senator Moore. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad to know that you've been giving underage people candy. Did you ask them to get in your van? Puppies. <laughs> That's puppies. <laughs> anyway, so... When you hear people, what, what what would you say your standard argument about um, why sort of forget buy local, right? Yeah. But buy American, right? Um, uh, why would someone say that's a bad? Why would you say tell some patriotic, decent American who wants to help his own country and not send money to China? Right. Why is that a bad idea? Yeah. So you know, I actually try to start with. Uh, the moral arguments for trade. I, you know, there are tons of economic arguments and we can we can talk philosophical issues and all that. But I mean, I think really the, at its most basic, I see trade as a, a moral argument. If, if someone wants to spend his or her own money buying American, OK, that's fine. Right. Now, I might personally say, well, you know, you're actually not getting the most value for yourself and for your family. You're not able to stretch your budget as far, right. um, whatever. But if that makes you happy, do it. But the difference between that and our Buy American laws and our protectionism is that protectionism is force. You're essentially forcing American consumers to subsidize certain American pr producers um, at, at their own expense. So in other words, and, and this is always the result of lobbying by these special interests. So you're really dealing with a very kind of cronyist system that is protectionism. And in fact, if you go back into the late 1800s and you look at Tausig's tariff history of the United States, it's actually uh, pretty interesting stuff. And I wrote about it. I, in an, I have it in my bathroom. Well, yeah. yeah it's I one mean, of my favorite reading. Things. Well, you know, but <laughs> so but but it's actually the cool thing about it. And, and I, I quoted it a bit in a new paper I wrote for Cato this at those out this summer is that the the protectionism of the late 18, uh, 1800s was so just uh, steeped in corruption. Right. Um, essentially, all of these tariffs were lobbied by domestic manufacturers and implemented by their cronies in Congress. Right. And, well, at the end of the day, who's really paying for that? Well, it's you and me, the American consumer. And, of course, poor American consumers who have to spend a lot more of their budget on daily necessities. And, you know, the economics back this up. They show that American, uh, the, the vast majority of consumer benefits, something like 90-something percent, go to the poor and middle class in the United States. So I'd, I always start with this moral argument. You know, buy American laws at their very essence are forcing poor American consumers to subsidize rich fat cats who are, have tons of connections. Right. Sort of a consumption tax on poor people. Right? Exactly. And hidden. That's the other thing. You know, at least, at least, you know, we, we all can have our issues with things like cylindra and so forth. But at least that's actually pretty transparent. Right. The government is saying, OK, we're going to implement a progressive tax system and then we're going to take some of those tax dollars and we're going to throw them to cylindra and cylindra is going to fail and whatever. But at least that's all out in the open. Well, no, no. Protectionism, on the other hand, it says, no, it's, a, it's under the guise of patriotism. Right. And the tax isn't direct. It's hidden. You don't see those higher prices or, or a 
at least you you don't really notice them unless they're at, for example, like the gas tank. Right. So so for that reason, I actually think it's far more pernicious and immoral than a simple uh, redistribution scheme that's at least out in the open and right. transparent and and progressive. Right. But it also works on the assumption that somebody in Washington is smarter than you about what you want to buy. Right. right? And one of the things when I was working on the book was I read this guy, Eustace Moser. Do you know him? He was a German um, late medieval public intellectual jurist guy in, I think it was Saxony or Bavaria, one of those places. And um, he hated um, traveling salesmen. And one of the reasons why he hated traveling salesmen is that the wares that they sold raised the horizons of what the peasants thought was available to them. Mm. And so he would, you know, he would say, you know, we've had these established guilds forever who make things a certain way and that's how we're supposed to live. And then you let these mostly Jewish, you know, <laughs> peddlers come in and sell their gloriously fantastic newfangled things as uh, that may save time or whatever, but they're unsettling to the traditional way of living. And um, what's it, Jerry Mueller, who wrote this wonderful book, The Mind on the Market, you know, he runs through all of the things that Moser wanted to keep out, right, to protect his, his little hamlets um, from the pernicious effects of. And it was things like needles, <laughs> frying pans, yeah, right, you, right. Know, uh, knit, you know, knitting needles, you know, these kinds of things that actually save the peasants enormous amount of time and modestly improve their lives. But they didn't comport with an aesthetic notion of how people are supposed to live. Yeah. And when you strip away a lot of the modern verbiage, it just seems to me that so much of what protectionism boils down to is a version of that. It's this nostalgic yep. notion of this is how people used to live and that's how they should still live. And so, therefore, we're going to ban these other things from coming in. Yeah. And in, in some cases, when you deal with really high tariffs that we still have on things like shoes and clothing uh, and food, you're actually dealing with a lot of the same things right. that, that were um, you know, being blocked Back in the olden days. But so, all right, so, but let's flip it around then. And so instead of what it means for the consumer, Erwin Stelzer wrote a little while ago about his conversation he had with Irving Kristol, where Stelzer was saying how he was against protectionism because it was a, while it was good for producers, it was sort of a conspiracy against consumers. And Irving, probably in part to be a provocateur, replied, well, you know, where is it written that public policy has to um, favor consumers instead of producers. Yeah. And there are, I think you, you could conceive, concede, if you're willing to say that consumers get shafted, right? We'll stipulate that. But you can still sort of concede there are, there are other benefits that come from, or at least protectionists would argue, there are benefits from rewarding producers. Right. Um, what do you say to people that, you know, you know so, so shoes would, have co would cost a little bit more, but if they didn't make them in China, lots of people would have better paying jobs making shoes here in America. Right. So, so there's a few arguments. Um, and, and I, I mean, I, think, I don't think that's very compelling at all, as you, as you might mm. guess. Um, that's I mean, sort of why I got you here. And, and yeah, yeah and, and leaving, <laughs> totally leaving aside the kind of Adam Smith point about how the point of, of this is consumption. Right. Um, and that, you know, consumers are kind of the most important. But let's leave that aside. So the first problem is that a, a lot of our producers are also consumers. Right. So if you put a tariff on steel, you're hurting steel uh, make you're steering steel consumers. Mm. Um, let's face it, you and I don't go out and buy a lunk of steel. 
Um, that is automakers and appliance makers and you name it. And steel is a great example because uh, not only are there tons of extra duties and tariffs and schemes to protect the U.S. steel industry, not only have they received billions in, in, in subsidies and so forth, um, and but they're, they're continuing to do that. They keep going back to the, the protectionist trough. But at the same time, uh, manufacturing workers in the United States uh, who consume steel, who need steel, uh, outnumber steel workers by something 40 to 60 to 1. Right. So your first immediate response is, um, you know, you can't separate producers and consumers, particularly in a globalized world of, of multinational supply chains and so forth, where even where even you're, where you're importing finished goods, so shoes or iPhones or whatever, you're still talking about supporting tons of American jobs that actually um, uh, allowed that that finished good to get to the United States. So there's your your first problem. And that's in production of services, marketing, design, retail, you name it. And even in blue-collar jobs like transport, working at the port, you name it. Okay, so that's your, your first problem. Your, your second problem is that by actually artificially increasing the price of goods, you're leaving less money for consumers to go out and buy other goods. So if you actually have to spend, say, 10 bucks instead of 5 bucks on a pair of shoes, well, that's $5 that just gets burnt up. We call that dead weight loss. Mm -hmm. So that $5 could have gone towards some other necessity that could have been made in America or a service that is, of course, made in America. You name it. So there's you're actually just shrinking the pie. You're shrinking the amount of American producers that could potentially benefit. So when you when you stop to think about well what are we really doing you're really not benefiting producers you're benefiting a very small segment of producers at the expense of other producers of course all of your consumers and of course the the economy more broadly and then i think that the third problem with that is that well we want to encourage producers well you're not exactly encouraging producers you're actually encouraging lobbying for protection right um the amount of money that companies spend on lobbying for protection could have been spent on innovating could right. have been spent on jobs and you're actually incentivizing this kind of bailout mentality and then and Included in that are plenty of evidence that that companies that actually just go to the trough of government protection uh, aren't as innovative. And that, of course, makes sense. It's kind of a stagnationism that that occurs. And so you end up with less innovation and a less dynamic economy. Um, you know, politicians will never admit this, but churn is, is a good thing. Right. Um, we don't want to be buggy whip manufacturers. We don't want to be working in the fields. Um, that type of disruption is a, is a good thing. In fact, I wrote a long you know, piece for National Review last year about this. Yeah. How we need this this dynamism, and we're, we're it's kind of um, uh, petering out, and that's a that's a problem. Right. And so, uh, the last thing you want to do um, for producers, for the producer side of our economy, is to kind of encourage this type of stagnation. Right. And it's, it's funny, like the sort of cartoonish standard Marxist notion about how you get to uh, sort of this idea that that capitalism and fascism go together, right? And that authoritarianism goes together. And the reality is that when you have a dynamic, schumpeterian, creative destruction kind of economy, right, businesses don't look to government. It's only when businesses are starting to die that they have to change their business model from meeting the demands of the consumer to meeting the demands of some politician. And, and but there is this, but the, so I guess here's the problem, right? So much of the benefits of trade 
I mean, it's, it's all a Bastiat problem. It's all a broken window problem, yeah. right? You know, for listeners who don't know, there's this great parable by Frederick Bastiat where someone breaks a window. You correct me if I got this wrong. Someone breaks a window and someone says, oh, this is great because now this will generate more economic activity because we'll, we'll pay a glassmaker or a glazier to repair it. And that's great. And Bastiat's point is, okay, you can see that money being spent. What yeah. you can't see is the money that the store owner lost by having to repair his window. That's a deadweight loss, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and trade is all about the unseen benefits. Right. So, I mean, I have my own theories about this. Why is this point so hard to communicate yeah. to people, particularly in a country that has benefited more from commerce and trade than literally any country in the history yeah. of the planet? I mean, the United States is basically one big free trade area, right? And right. It's, it's set in the Constitution that the states can't erect barriers. Now, as a, as a licensed lawyer in North Carolina, I'd argue they still do right, right, right. implement barriers. But for the most part, you know, we have a pretty free uh, uh, trade system here in the United it's, States. It's, well, but this is important, just to get back to that for one second. We have trade barriers for services, yeah, but not for goods, right? Right, right. yeah. That's that's correct. And and I would I I am still dreaming of the day, and I know that the the bar is probably going to get mad at me for saying this, of someone to raise an interstate commerce claim against, for example, bar admission. Yeah. Um. I mean, it took me years to yeah. to be able to wave into the North Carolina bar from the D.C. bar. That's a pretty severe restriction on commerce. Right. Hasn't really happened. You know, we, it's the same thing with doctors, too. Oh, yeah. Right? Doctors, you know? dentists, you name it. Yeah. Professional licensing is one giant restriction on interstate commerce. Um, uh, <laughs> it's a difficult case, but but one I'd, I'd probably uh, enjoy seeing. But anyway, back to your point. The, the truth is that, that Americans' brains, I think, turn off when you actually move from an interstate border to an international border. And this actually goes back in some ways to, I don't know if you, Brian Kaplan's Myth of the Rational Voter. Mm -hmm. So the the, great book, great paper he wrote for Cato as well on the same subject. It's kind of the cliff notes of his book. But he talks about all these different biases that Americans or most voters harbor. And if you go down the list, it's like every single one applies to trade. There's this anti, and the the biggest one is anti-foreign bias. Mm -hmm. Um, We just simply don't have the same suspicions about people in Texas as we do people in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have we aren't as trusting or we're more skeptical of our elected officials when it comes to implementing barriers between us and people in Texas than between us and people in China. Um, and, you know, that's that's in human nature and you can understand it. And then, you know, we talked about there are these kind of seen versus unseen benefits. Well, you know, most Americans don't work in trade sensitive industries uh, international trade sensitive industries. Mm. So they don't and they don't travel abroad a lot. So they don't see uh, the the benefits of of international trade. They do, and they don't experience the pains of protectionism directly. So when you start making this connection more attenuated, when you start um, and which is what kind of international borders do, it's far more difficult I think for for most Americans to um, to innately understand concepts that in their everyday lives they first of all practice um, in their domestic political system they they agree with and in their kind of uh, political philosophy, um, you know, they they side with. You know, I uh, the line I use a lot is that conservatives uh, are aghast at the idea of putting the government between them and their doctors, mm-hmm. and yet a lot of conservatives are routinely petitioning t- to put the government between them and their retailers, them and their and their pr- producers. Um, it really makes no sense unless you understand these kind of innate biases that that color the issue. 
So I, I, just a couple quick responses to that. One, we should be clear. I mean, I asked the question about Americans, and I think your answer is entirely right. But this is also true of basically everything oh, yeah. around the world. Oh, right? yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and this is sort of one of the things I'm sort of hooked on is this. Um, if you had a visitor from Mars come here a thousand years ago and then come here today, what would look different and what would look the same? Mm -hmm. And lots of things would look different, cars, planes, all of that kind of stuff. But he would also, or she, would recognize a lot of arrangements that are pretty similar to what we had in feudal times, right? Um, car dealerships in the United States, you basically have the equivalent of like a feudal dukedom that's inheritable for your family in perpetuity, right? Yeah. One of my favorite examples, which I cite in the book, was um, in Mexico, a lot of teaching jobs are heritable. So that if you're a chemistry teacher, you can leave your job teaching chemistry to your kid <laughs> um, because it's considered a... You know, it, 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 it's a kind of aristocracy kind of yeah. thing. And we and when you start looking around America, you can see all these sorts of ideas that aren't as different as they were in the past. And I think protectionism is oh, one yeah. of the great examples of it. Um, that said, you know, like Adam Smith, free trader, good free trader, right? Two thumbs up for Adam Smith. But uh, he did say he did have an exclusion for national defense stuff. Yeah. Right. And, and Milton Friedman did, too. Yeah. So do you as well? Yeah, I do. The The issue, though, and in fact, um, this is something I wrote. I wrote a paper on uh, energy exports for Cato a couple of years ago. And and I said quite plainly that, you know, I think I think it's we should have as many crude oil, natural gas exports as possible. Right. But there should obviously be a national security exception. The difference, though, is where the burden falls and how you demonstrate this. And this is this goes back to the kind of innate skepticism I have about protectionism, but that I think most Americans don't. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to simply accept the American government's declaration of a national emergency and the need to block trade. I think there needs to be a tangible demonstration of that, of some sort of imminent right. threat. And and I think that's perfectly appropriate. Look, wartime, obviously, you're going to need uh, or there's a, a high probability of trade restrictions being necessary. Outside of wartime, um, unless you're, again, dealing with like rogue nations building nukes, I, I see a, a less compelling case and I want the government to make that case. What about the capacity to build battleships or that kind of thing? Yeah, and so so there you start getting into a slippery slope issue because most of the materials that um, are used to make a battleship are just everyday commodities. Uh -huh. Now, that said, the United States government has a long list of dual-use technologies that are banned from export or at least have to go through very, very rigorous um, compliance um, export controls. And I don't think any libertarians really have a, a huge problem with most of that. Most right. But I mean, isn't one of the arguments, though, that you need to have a um, the it's 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 less the raw materials for building battleships or jet fighters, but it's the highly trained workforce that you need to keep employed. Right. Because if you stop it now, you can't re you can't reassess those skills will be lost. You have to sort of keep the supply chain going right. in perpetuity. Is there well, so there's 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 uh, valid and invalid arguments there, and not to sound like a lawyer, but the 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 valid argument is: look, you don't want the entire lack of an industrial base. You don't want to be completely dependent, um, for, particularly um, if there 
particularly when it comes to really, you know, important pieces of the kind of national defense um, infrastructure. That said, um, we're nowhere near any of that. Right. And that's and we also have a lot of allies, you know, Canada and Mexico and whatever that um, we for now. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, we have um, mutual we have treaties that involve kind of industrial uh, procurement. Yeah. In case of emergency. So, yeah, sure. You know, there needs to be a a very reasoned assessment of that. When you actually do that reasoned assessment, you see that we're nowhere near any sort of national security threat when it comes to our productive capacity. In fact, you know, the the the, 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 earlier this year, President Trump started this national security investigation of steel imports. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the DOD came back to the the president and said, you know, we need like maybe 5% of total st- U.S. steel capacity, even at the peak. I mean, yeah. if we were to go to war, we only need 5%. Right. Take. So, you know, the idea that that Chinese imports are a national security threat is just garbage. Yeah. And that's the key. You have to be able to be a skeptic when it comes to these types of ideas and look at it just as rationally as I think most of us, at least on the kind of right side of the aisle, uh, look at other government schemes. That's how we need to treat protectionism. And that really goes back, you know, we have this whole intricate system for import barriers for fair trade. This is a great example where people's brains just turn off and they become instantly willing to accept the government's word for it. So our fair trade laws, what we call trade remedies, are uh, blanket assessments of bad behavior by foreign producers that rely mainly on the allegations of the domestic producers in the United States. So in what other context would you let one producer competing for your dollars dictate uh, the the fairness of the other guy, the other producer, and right. his 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 primary competitor. You would at least go, hmm. You know, I'd like to see the proof of that. In 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 the trade context, we we don't. Yeah. All right, Scott. So just hold on one second. Um, I have to talk a little bit about donors' trust again. It's no secret that the best policy ideas are not coming from politicians. Instead, they're coming from the think tanks, public interest law centers, and other principled individuals and groups from around the country. And the best ones are those that do not rely on government money to operate, for reasons that uh, should be obvious. If you want to help move the ideas of liberty forward, invest your charitable giving in those doing the real work of conservative causes. And the simplest way to do that is through Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for the liberty movement. With a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust, you'll simplify your giving and receive excellent tax benefits, all in a way that gives you an additional layer of privacy. All donor-advised funds offer the same basic services, but Donors Trust is the only donor-advised fund that shares your commitment to conservative principles. This is assuming that everyone listening is conservative or dedicated to liberty. If you're a progressive fellow traveler listening to this, you're invited to uh, give to these groups too. You know, some of these groups, you know, there are lots of progressives out there who are much more interested in libertarian stuff these days than they once were. Regardless, go to DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo for your free investing in liberty guide that gives practical advice on how to identify principle-driven charities that deserve your support. As we near the end of 2017, Donors Trust is the partner you need. The stock market is booming and the tax code is changing. Donors Trust experts can help you navigate all of that and equip you to give in a way that best benefits you, your family, and the principles you hold dear. So one last time, 
visit donorstrust.org slash dingo. Right now to download a free copy of your helpful guide, discover a better way to support the conservative values you believe in. That's donorstrust.org slash dingo. All right, back to the conversation. So I want to switch gears a little bit uh, with the time we got left. Um, in terms of the so the, the deindustrialization of America argument is garbage, yeah. right? You know, we are actually manufacturing more than we ever have. Right. We just have fewer workers, right? right? Now, which gets to the question of to the extent that we've got all of these forgotten men, right, who are deracinated, disassociated, wandering around wearing their MAGA hats or whatever. How much of the problems attributed to globalization do you think have to do with trade versus automation versus immigration? Right. So I think that uh, vast majority are automation and innovation and changing consumer tastes. So we can just really just call it all like tech, mm-hmm. the technology, because the fact is that Netflix has taken a lot of jobs, too. And that's not exactly automation. Right. It's not like a, you know, a but there are fewer blockbuster clerks. Exactly. Right. Uh, and, there, and there's tons of examples of that, particularly in like retail. You know, Amazon's killing jobs all the time. Right. right. So. Um, it, it it looks like the vast majority of um, the loss of manufacturing jobs in particular, um, but really just low-skill jobs in general, is due to technology. And that is, you know, I, it's hard to put a number on it, but you're looking at, say, 75% mm. per take. The rest is going to be split between trade and I think to a much lesser extent immigration. I'm not an immigration expert, but, you know, I do look at the numbers and they uh, and the, the general view is, right, you know, you're talking about direct competition at the low, low end. So like a non high school dropouts. Mm-hmm. It's really where you're talking about direct labor competition and most immigration. Now, there's some, of course, in the higher skill areas, too. But no one really cares not, about that. Right. And that's yeah. not MAGA hat, MAGA hat guys. Right. Um, so. Uh, overall, you know, you're looking at trades going to cause, say, let's say 15%. The fact is, though, that we don't have an adjustment policy for any of those guys, at least right. a good one. Um, and, you know, some guys like Tim Scott have, have thought of some things, but they're really nibbling around the edges. And the fact is that disruption is occurring more quickly today. I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm a technology optimist. I think these jobs do eventually get replaced. But there's a lot of stickiness. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's difficult for humans to just and we don't just change gears. Now, protectionism isn't the answer, because what you see is that not only are you imposing immense consumer costs, but those jobs end up going away anyway. Um, and again, you're leaving out the vast majority of the of the not problem, the issue. Right. So which is a real problem for real people. Oh, yeah. It, but 100%. as a matter of public policy, that's a different issue. Exactly. Right. And so you have to ask yourself, well, what what can we do? And I, I mean, I think there are there are a, uh, a lot of things, you know, first is I think the first the most important thing is I think politicians, elected leaders, pundits, whatever you <laughs> yeah. have to be more honest with um, their voters about what's coming. You know, I think that a lot of blame for the kind of rise of Trumpism and the MAGA hot brigades, MAGA hat, whatever you say, is uh, is the politicians have promised them for 30 plus years that their low skill manufacturing jobs that were being automated away or right. traded were coming back. And we're, I mean, just, you know, Rick Santorum just a few years ago was promising that these jobs were coming back. Trump, of course, did the same thing. Well, that's garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is that somebody needs to have an honest conversation and say, look, there is uh, disruption occurring. It's occurring every day. We lose millions of jobs 
every month. Mm-hmm. Um, that destruction is natural, and overall, that type of competition destruction is is good right. for the economy. But it's going to be bad for you. And what I want to do is I want to help you. I'm going to help you save more. I'm going to help you retrain. And this doesn't have to be proactive government policy. It can be simply letting Americans save more of their own dollars through things like tax-free saving accounts that those radicals in Canada have implemented. (laughs) Oh, heaven forbid. Um, Or it could be providing some sort of incentives for retraining. Letting people, you know, I always bring this up, but my favorite is, you know, right now you can get a tax deduction for training in your current job, but you can't get the same tax deduction for training in another future job. So you could be a guy working in a textile mill and you can get a a tax deduction for uh, learning that new piece of of textile equipment. But you can't get one for going to learn how to code or, or, you know, do another blue collar job like laying fiber optic cable, whatever. So those types of policies, we really need a radical rethink. And and again, that's not a trade issue. It's an adjustment issue and a dynamism issue. And nobody's really talking about that to a, uh, to a in my opinion, a significant enough. Experience. So you're a free trade guy. Mm-hmm. Are you a free trade guy when it comes to – and you're talking about internally that we have these internal tariffs for labor across state lines. Does a free trade guy have to be a free trade guy when it comes to immigration? Well, I think yes and no. So I think that um, we free trader guys tend to believe that contracted work, well, you know, H-1B visa type stuff, should be pretty unlimited. Mm-hmm. Um, g- companies and individuals, let's face it, they're individuals at the end of the day, should be able to contract with whomever they want for, for business. That said, um, I'm kind of a Tyler Cowen guy. I, he's convinced me that I think that there's too much cultural friction and potential uh, pushback mm-hmm. uh, because these are humans, after all, not just widgets. So there needs to be some sort of governor mm-hmm. on that process. So I wouldn't say it should be just a, a free-for-all for every contracted job, I, but I do think it should be expanded. Uh, and and uh, whereas I think trade trade, goods and services, generally... I mean, you're pretty much right. yeah, wide that, open. That's basically where I come down. Uh, you know, I thought the George Borjas book was pretty persuasive on a lot of this. And, you know, the title of it is um, we, we Wanted Workers and We Got People. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you need a remarkable amount of cultural and social consensus right. to make an economy. You know, economy is a social construct. You know, capitalism is a social construct. Right. And if people feel like they're... It's another part of human nature that if, if if you read Robert Putnam and these guys, there's an enormous amount of pulling back from civil society when you get to a critical mass of um, immigration. And we have the highest percentage of foreign-born people in America and American history right now um, or close to it. And I don't think it's racist to say that people who are citizens here should have a little more sense of control about who become citizens. Now, personally – now, my standard position on immigration has always been, you know, people ask me, what's your immigration policy? And my first answer has always been to have one, yeah. right? You know, and if, if we want to say a million immigrants a year, fine, a million immigrants a year, but not a million two, a million five, because then people start to feel like suckers. They start to feel they're being exploited. And then you get a, what you have now, which is this sort of anti-immigrant fever yeah. that goes around the place. So, so in the waning minutes, how much damage do you think the, from the free trade perspective, do you think Trump is actually doing in tangible ways rather than just the rhetoric? I mean, if you if you go by the rhetoric, I don't understand how you haven't killed yourself yet. <laughs> um, A lot of alcohol. <laughs> but 
in terms of actual tangible yeah. stuff, how bad or how good or how right. Not, yeah. So so I I'll talk three areas. Um, so first on the public opinion side, uh, it's been surprisingly okay. Yeah. You know, at during the election, you saw a dramatic drop in Republican support for trade. That has actually rebounded a decent bit. Uh-huh. Democrats, on the other hand, are now like full bore free traders. Now, look, I'm, I'm not crazy enough to think that that's going to last forever, but it it I think it's actually really helpful. It shows that, first of all, uh, more people like trade than than is kind of the common political sen- consensus here in mm-hmm. D.C. Here in D.C., trade is a four letter word. I mean, you don't you don't want to take a vote on it. You want to talk about yeah. it. Oh, it's scary. Well, no, I mean, it looks it looks like people people like it, uh, particularly millennials. Um, I think it might be because of avocado trade, but <laughs> whatever it is, um, you know, there's a there's a there's a, a nice. The polling's pretty decent, and I think Trump actually, believe it or not, has helped. Um, whether that's because it's mobilized people to look into it themselves, or because journalists have started actually reporting on it correctly, which mm-hmm. is has been kind of a revelation. I'm actually quite popular these days, which is hilarious. (laughs) And um, whatever the reason, I think on the public opinion side, we're going to be, we are okay. On the U.S. policy side, uh, the jury's still out. Uh, Trump has not been the crazy protectionist that he promised. He's doing some things on the edges that are a bit scary. On the other hand, it appears that his wildest ideas have, have, have gone away. With the exception of pulling out a TPP. Right. So that's what I was going to get to at the end. Uh-huh. So I, TPP I consider on the international side of it. So so public opinion, fine. Domestic side, jury's still out. Some kind of bad stuff. And by what I mean by domestic side is U.S. law issues, things like trade remedies, anti-dumping, countervailing duties, or these kind of dusty old statutes that at the beginning of Trump's uh, tenure. I mentioned Section 232, this national security case for steel. These things were kind of scary. You weren't, I mean, we're not supposed to use those anymore. They raise a lot of domestic issues and they're like just straight up protectionism. Mm. So those are, it looks like we might be okay. We're still kind of jury still out. International side, it's pretty bad. Fact is, so TPP withdrawal, uh, I wasn't a huge fan of TPP. I was a tepid supporter. I wasn't either. I, um, I, I thought it purely in strategic terms about curtailing yeah. China. Yeah, and and look, you know, it did have some benefits. And anytime you can lower um, American, anytime you can lock in lower American trade barriers, I'm I'm generally going to be supportive. Um, but there were some things uh, there were some things wrong with it. It could have easily been fixed. Could have taken a, a, a sane President Trump six months to fix. Let it sit around for another six months. Suddenly declare it fixed. And next thing you know, you have a pretty good deal mm-hmm. and you're using it strategically, like you mentioned. It's a nice geopolitical weapon right. um, or tool, whatever you want to call it. OK, so TPP. I'm OK with weapon, but anyway. <laughs> anyway so TPP, problem. Uh, NAFTA, problem. Um, and by NAFTA, you know, maybe we're going to skirt by with NAFTA, but I think Trump is doing pretty serious damage to our uh, kind of North American alliance. Mm-hmm. You know, the North American supply chain, North America, Canada, Mexico, United States, it's a pretty awesome thing. Yeah. Not just economically. I mean, I think that as a force for good in the world and stuff, it's it's pretty great. And, you know, Canada is moving on. They're looking to other markets. Mexico's doing the same thing. We could see the election in Mexico of a pretty anti-American guy who actually might be pretty pro-NAFTA, but pretty anti-American. And so, you know, people tend to forget Mexico is kind of a scary place about 30 years ago. And are we returning to that? Then I think the the World Trade Organization, which I, again, think has been a tremendous force for good over the last 70 years, um, at least in the GATT in 70 and then 
1995 is the WTO, is also a, a pretty a pretty significant problem. This is way too wonky for for now, but I mean, I'll just say that there are not only on the negotiating side, which has kind of been a mess for a while, but on the dispute settlement side, there are some pretty significant hurdles that the United States is erecting. You look at our relationships with, with, with the European Union and Germany and a lot of our allies, Japan, and what you can see, if you if you step back, you can see basically every country in the world is kind of just glacially moving away from the United States. It's kind of like, you know, that guy at the party that maybe lets one go and everybody kind of just... (laughs) That's kind of what's happening. Um, And you're seeing trade alliances and geopolitical alliances develop without the United States. And again, leaving the economics out of it, I think that's a very bad thing long term. And I don't know, once those relationships change... And there is this kind of tectonic shift, how easy it will be to fix. Mm-hmm. And I particularly do worry about things like the World Trade Organization. You know, if 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 we start implementing national security claimed protectionism, that can have major problems at the WTO. If we blow up the dispute settlement system, that can have major repercussions down the line. And the whole process, for example, at the WTO is this voluntary, what we call an iterative process. It requires engagement. And if you don't engage, if everybody pulls away, the thing kind of just withers. Yeah. Um, and that, all of that does scare me. The only place, because first of all, I'm, I'm entirely ill-equipped to argue with you about any of those stuff, and it sounds like I agree with you. The only place where I will push back slightly is I don't know how... I understand from your perspective seeing American voters sort of counter Trump by being more pro-free trade would seem like a good news story. (laughs) Um, But it seems to me that this is actually part of a more depressing phenomenon where because of the populist spirit out there, if Trump is for something, people abandon long-held principles to be against it. Or if Trump is against something, you know, both on the right and the left, you know. And so the idea that like, the people who voted for Bernie Sanders say they're for free trade now because Trump is right. against free trade. I don't think they're very reliable voters. Right. No, I totally agree. Um, but I do think that – so one of the things that we have – we free trader guys have argued for a long time, and Dan Eikenson over Cato and I wrote a paper on this a few years ago, is – Politicians need to understand just how malleable public opinion on trade is. There's this great wishy-washy middle that kind of just fluctuates between support and opposition. And the reason we want to point that out is that you shouldn't put much faith in polls, that politicians shouldn't make policy based on how NAFTA is polling, whatever. But at the same time, it leaves this this fertile ground for a strong rhetorical argument in favor of free trade. There are There are votes to be had here if someone were willing and able to make the arguments. And I think that's what I really mean by that, is that I think that Trump has demonstrated just how kind of wishy-washy a lot of people are on this issue. And uh, again, I mean, I do, I have noticed, and I forget the exact poll, but there was one recently where it actually seemed like he, his, his rhetoric is causing people to kind of think, wow, maybe I actually do value trade more than I, I think thought I did, or maybe I never thought yeah. about the issue. I mean, it's certainly true among a lot of people. Like when I talk to audiences around the country, there are people who are in the abstract who are like, yeah, we're getting screwed by NAFTA and we're getting screwed by that. And then their bosses or their, their accountants or their business managers or whoever the audience is actually look what 
protectionism would do to their own bottom yeah. line, their own business. They're like, holy crap, this is yeah. terrible. You know, I mean, I was in Washington State and, you know, you look at what how export driven agriculture there is, certainly the you know aerospace yeah. industry and all that kind of stuff. And all these people who in the theory said, oh, we're getting screwed, all of a sudden realized, but wait a second, my own pocketbook is going to get screwed if yep. we put up barriers. That, I think, is real, right? I mean, the, whenever you actually feel the pinch of public policy, that's good. And that's one of the reasons why the protectionist thing is so classically crony capitalism, right? Because it's it's concentrated benefit and diffused costs. Right. This company benefits from protectionism and no one notices the costs because of all the unseen nature of, of trade. I want to close because we're running long here. And I've so far, this this is the 10th podcast I've done. And so far, I've closed each one by asking a guest, what is the one thing that either surprised you mm-hmm. or would surprise other people that you learned from either your time in Washington or your time doing what you're doing? Like, I just to give you an example I'm talking about, Yuval Levin was a friend of mine. He was, uh, he worked on Capitol Hill for a while. He worked in the Bush White House. And he's a PhD, he's crazy smart. And the thing that he took away was no one really knows what they're doing, right? The, yeah. This idea that you can plan is garbage, right? That everyone is just trying to move the wet noodle across the carpet and they make it sound like they've got this great plan, but it, it never comes to fruition. Ben Sass talked some weird stuff about the nudity in the Senate locker room. We don't have to get into that. <laughs> Steve Hayes talked about how this idea that conservatives who disagree with the prevailing party line are just doing it so they can be invited to Georgetown cocktail parties is garbage. So um, it doesn't have to be something super serious. Yeah. But what would you say when someone says what what the real Washington, the real world of this trade policy, think tank life, whatever, what would surprise people? I think the extent what well, what surprised me yeah, was fine. is the extent to which Public policy doesn't matter in the lives of uh, everyday American voters. Uh-huh. That is something – I mean I – it has pained me in a sense. But it has been a very eye-open experience the last few years to realize that the vast majority of our political debate is a cultural sure. debate. And, you know, look, I'm an unfeeling robotic libertarian. I mean I'm – you know, I'm market man, right? right? And so for that – and I think that that actually – um, it it matters a lot when you, as a policy wonk, to understand really what you're what you're dealing with. Now, mm-hmm. in some sense, it's kind of like an eat Arby's, LOL, nothing matters moment. Right. But at the, in another sense, it's I think very valuable because you learn that you need to make your arguments in a a different way. And but you also need to accept that at the end of the day, you know, market man is not going to win. Right. The argument. Right. And and I think that that if more wonks in Washington actually grasped that, I think we'd all be much better off because, you know, I, I still hear, oh, well, Trump voters are voting against their own interests. And I said, well, no, I mean, the, the fact is that most everyday folks are just not making decisions based on kind of pragmatic policy. And, oh, the tax plan is going to do this for my. Right. No, no. And so. If you if you get that, if you understand that, then I think it helps you be a much better uh, uh, wonk. Makes it helps you be a much better advocate for yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. And I don't think that uh, in our little cloistered world we we get that enough. No, I I, I think that's right. There's a lot of um, emotivism, right, or emotionalism in a lot of this, and 
fear of strangers thing is big. The the very idea, I mean, it sort of goes back to Yuval's point. The very idea yeah. that we're sort of hardwired to want to believe that there's somebody in charge who's really making these decisions and running things. And so we have this emotional desire to pick who our head man is, yeah. you know. And and so it becomes, I mean, I've been writing about this a lot. It's um, the MacGuffinization of politics where... Mm-hmm. We just, you know, Barack Obama was covered by the press as the hero who must achieve his goal. And it doesn't matter whether he contradicted himself or did something unconstitutional. What mattered was his victory versus the Republicans' loss. And it's the same thing with the way a lot of people on the right cover Trump. They just want him to have wins. And it doesn't really matter what the public policy is underneath. It's just all about my team has to win, your team has to lose. And, you know, the idea that someone that, I mean, that's why I think the polling about the tax bill is such garbage, right? I mean, <laughs> no one knows what's in this tax bill. I mean, I, I, I don't even know. Yeah, no, I can get three tax experts on the phone right now, and they'll tell me three different things about it. You know, yeah. it's just too big a crazy thing. But what they know is, is they want this team to win and that team to yep. lose. You yep. know? And, well, and I tell you, you know, the number of articles I've read in the last three years that are, uh, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of this man on the street, uh, Trump voter, you know, uh, uh, Jane Goodall-esque reporting, right, of of, P, of Trump voters. And the thing that, that really is eye-opening is that you'll talk to people on the trade front. Um, they will talk to people who whose jobs depend on international trade. They will literally work in a job that is either a foreign multinational right, right, right. or they export or they work at the port. And these folks are still like, yeah, economic nationalism. That's right. sweet. And you want to just, you know, <laughs> ba- you know, like you said, I drink a lot. Or like I said, I drink a lot now. But, you know, the fact is, I think that that's actually critical to understand, well, how are we as advocates going to make better arguments? How are we right. really... You know, some people are, it's lost cause, that's fine. But there's this, again, kind of wishy-washy middle that you, you need to learn, we need to learn how to, to get to, and I don't think we're doing a very good job of it. And I think free traders doing a really crappy job. No, I think that's honestly. right. I think that's right. And, and, and I should be fair, I mean, look, I, I, I'm kind of down on a lot of the sort of, you know, sort of caricature, cartoonish Trump voter people, all that matters is him winning. This is an enormous problem with a lot of people on the left too, oh, right? Yeah. It's the same sweet tooth. We're hardwired. Human nature is hardwired to want to live tribally. And so nationalism pings basically the same sweet tooth that socialism does. Mm-hmm. It's just the terms are defined a little differently, yeah. you know? Anyway, it was great to have you here. My pleasure. And uh, hope to have you on again and uh, keep drinking. <laughs> it was at that moment that I first realized Elaine had doubts about our relationship. And that, as much as anything else, led to my drinking problem. Okay, so my thanks again to Scott Lincecum, who's left the building, and I'm joined again, as usual, but not always, with uh, my emuensis, Jack Butler, and with Michael Pratt of the American Enterprise Institute and the host of... Filler Words, the best podcast like ever. Like was a filler word. Never uh, say that again. (laughs) Um, And uh, um, I actually have to run. It's uh, where we got... I got to be on special. It's Thursday and I got to be on special report tonight. And um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the crazy week that we've had. Then again, it has been such a crazy week. I mean, Monday was was bonkers. Tuesday was nuts. And Wednesday, I expected to see the Potomac turn to blood. Um, It was so strange. Thursday, as far as I can tell, has only been abnormal by normal standards. And uh, I Need to quickly press the lock the door button on our studio desk here, although I think 
Jack and Michael are probably safe from my predations. <laughs> what I want to know is how, if that was known that the building that 30 Rock had those buttons, I, how did that not become a joke in the show 30 Rock? That just seems like something that Jack Donaghy would have had. You know, that's actually a really good point. You'd think that would, that would come up. Apparently, lots of people had these buttons. Yeah. And which is, it's not creepy at all. No. Um, Click. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know on, on Twitter, I was joking about how we should cut NBC some slack because at least they, uh, didn't approve Matt Lauer's request for the uh, trap door that led to his soundproof sex dungeon. <laughs> um, but the, the the true mystery in all of this is 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 Garrison Keeler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess it's not a mystery, uh, but you know, I don't like thinking about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what I don't, you know. So look, I mean, it's strange. Look, I, I'm, I'm a crude guy. You know, we did a stage reading of Bigfoot erotica on this show. Yes, we did. And um, I'm still getting grief over it. And although it's funny, it's now a die marker on Twitter because if I mention Bigfoot erotica and people are like, "What the hell are you talking about?" I can tell they don't listen to the podcast, yeah, and I can true. shame them. <laughs> but uh, so I don't think anyone thinks of me as a particularly prudish guy, right? But I don't. I don't. I, I honestly like. And maybe it's, I have just enough neurotic Jew in me that it just never occurred to me to want to, uh, how to euphemize this, um, pray at the altar of Onan in front of, you know, a coworker without their permission or even with their permission, you know. And, and so anyway, it kind of feels like if this pace continues, since I, I'm perfectly comfortable saying flat out, I have never, never sexually harassed anybody in my life and I've never sexually assaulted anybody in my life. If this thing continues, I'm going to have, like, my own primetime television show because <laughs> everyone else – I mean, if, if Garrison Keillor comes up in the lottery, uh, who who, yeah. who who can't? Yeah. Well, I one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is what was going through Matt Lahr's mind and what's going through all these other people's minds as they're reporting on these stories knowing that they could be the, the next one. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a – you know, he did this very aggressive interview with, with Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. Asking him, you know, you know, these super sensey Today Show kind of questions about, you know, how do you, how could you possibly do that? Can't you think about what, how you made these women feel doing that? And meanwhile, the guy is like a supervillain with his like James Bond button that locks his door, where he's essentially, if the New York Times story is correct, pretty close to just rapey stuff, yeah. you know. And I don't, I, I'm not a. I, I, I'm not a big believer in compartmentalization. I always thought that was a bull, a BS thing with, yeah. with Bill Clinton, and I, I kind of think that like you're the same, you know. If, if your morality doesn't hold constant across situations, again, I'm not some super pretty guy. I I hit on a lot of teenage girls. I was a teenager too, yeah. but um, you know, it wasn't predation. Breitbart headline: Jonah Goldberg admits to hitting on teenage girls. <laughs> yeah, maybe I can get Milo's old job. Um, and. Uh, um, but I just find that this, you know, I don't, it's like when this thing broke at Fox, right back when it was just a Fox story, I was kind of pissed off because again, I, I tell dirty jokes. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not brutish and all that kind of stuff. And it was, it sounded like it was so pervasive and yet no one ever told me about any of it. And I was like, you know, do I give off some sort of like Comstockish vibe that we can't talk about these kinds of things, what all the real men are doing? Um, but now it just turns out that it's 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 not a Fox story. It's an America story, and it's 
it's super, super creepy. And um, I keep waiting. I was talking about this on Glop the other day. I keep waiting for, you know, I was one of the first guys to say that the UVA rape story was BS. I just read like BS to me. Mm -hmm. I'm totally open to the idea that, that people are going to take advantage of this and make up stuff. I thought some of the sexual harassment claims that got big payouts at Fox were, if not embellished, then the lawyers were very good at what they were doing. So I'm not a, I think false accusations are entirely possible. But so far, it doesn't sound like right. any of them are false accusations, right? right? They're well-sourced. They're on the record or close to being on the record. And they're, apparently there's evidence in a fair number of these cases, too. Yeah. And what I don't, one of the things I don't get is how you can, again, with any intellectual honesty, say that the revelations about Lauer and, and, Garrison Keillor and Al Franken, I mean, you go down the list. These are all absolutely true, and you have to believe the accusers and the reporting. But, you know, Roy Moore totally deserves the benefit of the doubt. Right, you know? yeah, right, right. But, Jonah, you forget only the, the accusations against my tribe are true. The ones that are toward my tribe are false, ipso facto. That's the moment we live in. That is the moment we live in, and it's very, very, very depressing. Even more depressing is now the rise of... Even if the accusations are true, what's the big deal? Um, yeah. Earlier today on The Federalist, someone wrote um, what I think in social science they call a hot garbage piece. Um, Is that the technical term? I think it's the technical yeah. term. Anyway, they, they usually go by the acronym, you know, HGP. <laughs> hey, hey, calm down. We didn't want to get wonky on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, after our conversation with Scott Lincecum, I think the next three or four podcasts have to be like, <laughs> purely about the Gilmore Girls or something to <laughs> even out the wonkiness between this and, and the one with Continetti. But uh, this is one of the dangers you get when you get so tribal and it becomes the cognitive dissonance of denying um, that Roy Moore's accusers sh you know, should be believed while believing all other accusers that go against your enemies leads a lot of people eventually to sort of make these, you know, these kind of arguments that particularly from some of the pastors about how, well, you know, Mary was 14 years old, which is not true. Um, but you'd think some of these sort of ministers would, you know, as they were talking, nervously look upward for the lightning yeah. bolt that's about to take them out, you know? Um, anyway, um, do we have any other action items that we need to discuss? Well, I wanted to ask you, does uh, your spaniel get jealous at all the dingo in the, uh, in the advertisements? Uh, that's a good question. Um, as a... Uh, as at least readers know, I've got two dogs. I've got the white trash swamp dog, Zoe, who's the dingo. And I've got uh, the Springer, English Springer Spaniel, who is the sort of airheaded, uh, dumbest daughter from Downton Abbey. And is, is she going to be in the royal wedding by any chance? She might. So, like, yeah. She comes from good bloodlines. Yeah. Um, I, I, just, I agree with Sonny Bunch on this. We should not, <laughs> as Americans, have to care about anything that happens with the British monarchy. Oh, I look. I mean, my old friend Ron Bailey always used to refer to England as England land. <laughs> um, I mean, and like I, I like England, and I think what Trump is doing with the British Britain first videos and all that is doing real damage with our allies. But to me, it's a harmless, quaint sort of Epcot Center kind of thing, right? I mean, it doesn't. The whole reason why it's okay to enjoy it. Is that it doesn't matter that much, right? They're the Kardashians. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Of, and right, yeah. 
And much classier than the yeah. Well, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Although that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a real low bar. That's, you know, <laughs> again, the <laughs> best gas station sushi in Alabama. <laughs> that's right. Um, although I can't use Alabama anymore. But, uh, that place is going to hell. Um, and uh, I know a, a lot of readers or listeners want more updates about dogs. We've got some ideas planned to do whole episodes about dogs. Uh, it's it's harder to figure out how to do that than I would like, but um, the dingo and the spaniel are doing great. I think there would be a great sort of 1970s-style crime-fighting show called The Dingo and the Spaniel. Nice. Uh, or maybe The Spaniel and the Dingo. I don't know. But again, I want to thank listeners. We did amazingly well in the iTunes rankings last week over Thanksgiving break. I think we got as high as 38 in the news and politics category, which may not sound like a lot, but for nine podcasts in to be beating, at least for a little while, things like Rush Limbaugh and Rachel Maddow and Chris Matthews and um, a whole, in the New York Times. and Don't punch down. Don't, that's don't right, punch yeah. down. Yeah, yeah, like, like, like. But, uh, uh, you know, meanwhile, you know, like the commentary podcast was not even on the top 200. Uh, that's really great. And I really appreciate it from you guys. And uh, I understand completely and intuitively not to detract anything from my conversation with Scott Lincecum, which I enjoyed. Uh, but I understand that some weeks may not be your cup of tea. Certainly the conservative intellectual history wonk fest that I did with Matt Continetti was not everybody's cup of tea, but I liked it. And the whole point of this podcast is to yell booger or talk about whatever the hell I want when I want to walk, want to talk about it, um, within some reason. And, um, and so I want to thank you. Please subscribe. Please send your feedback to the remnant pod at gmail.com. And, um, We'll talk to you next week. Thanks. We'll be right back.